Well, good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. If we don't know each other, I would love to meet you. And I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us too. And just want to say thanks, Andrew, for your prayer. And just thank you also for the work that you and the others on the missions committee do. Um, they don't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to ask if you serve on the missions committee, can you please stand up so people can see who you are? So Andrew, Henlo, Jen, Bruce, Robert, um, Don, I think, am I missing anybody? Yeah. So thank you to our missions committee. Thanks. Yeah. Um, if you didn't know, today is the fourth Sunday in a series on missions entitled On Mission with God. Now, when I was a kid growing up in the church, we never had an entire series on missions. We were lucky if we had one Sunday a year that was Mission Sunday, and it always happened to, it always coincided with a missionary who was overseas, who happened to be in town in Canada, and they were going around to different churches in order to raise support. That's always when we had our Mission Sunday. And they almost always seemed to preach from the same passage, the one that I'll be looking at at some point today in our sermon. It's Jesus' Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, where he says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I always enjoyed listening to the missionary's message and hearing about the lives changed in other parts of the world. But those mission Sundays, they always left me with the impression that the people who were really advancing the mission of God were those who went to a foreign country to teach Christianity to those people who didn't have Bibles. And though I admired their work and was fascinated by everything they did, I had no desire to do that myself. And this made me feel like the missionaries were the best followers of Jesus, while the rest of us, we were mm, mediocre. And they were the starting team. They were those who were really getting it done for Jesus. They were in the game, advancing the mission by doing the work of the Lord, while the rest of us, we might be at home serving, doing some good things. But... We were the bench warmers. We were the reserve team. We weren't really in the game, but we could support and cheer on the starters. But I've since come to realize that I not only had a very limited view of missionaries, but also the mission that God is carrying out in his world and my part in his mission. And perhaps you've also had a skewed idea of these things too in the past. Perhaps this is why the missions committee, when planning this series, asked if I would preach a message that was sort of an introductory class to missions. I think maybe this is Professor Perkins' idea, right? So today we're going to have a little Missions 101, and I've always wanted to do this. Well, class, let's begin. Pop quiz, right? And just so you know, this quiz will count towards your final grade. First question. Which of these Bible characters was a missionary? Eve from the Garden of Eden or Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans? Mark your answer. Next question. 
Which of these people who shared during our last Calvary stories a couple weeks back is doing missions? Neil and Lucy Rogers, who are uh, overseas missionaries, or Lydia Ashanti, who's a mother and also is a client service co services coordinator at Crisis's Crisis Pregnancy Center. Mark your answer. Hey, no talking to each other back there or else this will go against you, yeah. Okay, which of these cause loss is participating in Jesus' great commission? Mindy, who lives and works at New Hope, or Lyle, who lives at New Hope but works at GitLab? Mark your answer down. Now, if you have answered in the affirmative that all of these people are participating in God's mission, you have aced the test. Well done. However, if that wasn't your answer, I'm sorry to say that you have failed abysmally, and you need to pay extra special attention to this morning's message, as if I even need to say that. You all always pay special attention to my sermons, right? Exactly. Sure, sure, sure. Well, my contention for today's message is that the Bible doesn't speak just about a few people being on mission while the rest of us are not. Rather, I believe that the entire Bible is about God's single mission that we can trace from the beginning of Genesis right to the last chapter of Revelation. And it is one unified story where we see God's plan and purpose for this world woven throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. And the most amazing thing about God's mission is that he invites you and me to be a part of it. Though it would be a whole lot easier for God just to do it alone, he would rather partner with people to fulfill his mission, and indeed, our involvement is an essential part of his plan. So we're going to go on this brief journey through Scripture and see what the mission of God is and how God continues to work it out while calling people to participate with him in it. Then we're going to come back to the Great Commission at the very end with hopefully a more holistic view of the mission that Jesus is calling you and I to participate with him in. And perhaps we'll even have a better understanding of how we can uniquely participate in the mission. Okay? So, first of all, what is the mission of God? I believe that right from the beginning in the creation accounts of Genesis, we see that God's mission is to bless the world that he created and for everything to be in a right relationship. So the mission is to bless the world he created and for everything to be in a right relationship or harmony. The Hebrew word shalom best captures this idea. Shalom means peace, but it is far more than just the absence of violence or unrest. Shalom is everything working as it was intended to. And blessing, it's far more than just wishful thinking or something you say to someone after they sneeze. But God's blessing is about flourishing and thriving. Flourishing and thriving. So when we think about that, think about a fruit tree whose branches are so heavy laden with fruit, they just bow towards the ground. Or think about a friendship that you have with someone who just really gets you, where you just relish time together because it just feels so easy and light. Or how about encounters with God that you've had that have just filled your heart with so much joy, you feel like you're about to burst. These 
are some of the, the feelings, some of the tastes of God's shalom. Now we see at the very beginning that God created everything in creation and he made it all good. And his desire was for the creation to be blessed. He says in Genesis 1.22, God blessed the birds and the sea creatures and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds of the earth increase, or let the birds increase on the earth. And so God's mission is that his world would flourish, but also that it would be in right relationship. In Genesis 2, God created the humans, and one of the most curious things that God concludes in that passage is that he says it's not good for the humans to be alone, that we, like God, have been built for relationship. One of the relationships that we have been built for is with the rest of creation. Genesis 2.15 says that God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. Here is the first sign that God is not fulfilling his mission alone. Surely he could have cared for the creation all by himself, but instead he enlists humans in blessing the world, and it should be very telling to us. The very first assignment that he gets us to help him with is caring for the earth. See, notice that the passage says, take care of it. Not own it, exploit it, or do whatever you want with it. We humans were designed to care for creation, to keep it safe, to help it to thrive. And we are supposed to be in a harmonious relationship with the earth so that both the humans and the creation can thrive. Another essential relationship for our blessing, but also necessary for the whole world to flourish, is us being in right relationship with other people. When Adam was without another human around, God could see that he was unable to thrive. But then when God brings Eve into the picture, Adam is overjoyed. And he's like, finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? Basically, Adam is saying, here is someone who I can relate to, someone who really gets me. Now, we should certainly cherish our relationship with the creation, like enjoy uh, time by the ocean or walks in the forests. Some of us love our pets, our cats and dogs. Some of us, we love time alone. We're introverts and we just love time to ourselves. But the Bible says that we, we all need human companionship that we thrive in good friendships. But when they are broken or absent, that's when the shalom God desires for us begins to wither and decline. And that's just what we see happen in Genesis chapter 3. It's that famous snake in the garden story where the humans reject joining God on his mission, deciding they'd rather make plans of their own, and it destroys their relationship and the condition the conditions that are vital for the world's flourishing, including our own blessing. Genesis 3.16 tells us how the relationship between the humans, specifically between men and women, have been warped by our refusal to live into God's mission. God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
Now, that is not the kind of mutuality that God intended that we would have with one another. And then God tells Adam how our relationship with the creation has been distorted. In verse 17, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. Do you see what it says there? Creation is cursed because of us. Yikes. That's startling. When we ignore God's mission to bless the world by helping it to flourish, and instead we take from it whatever we want for our own comfort or profit, we end up cursing creation. And not only does it suffer, but it results in pain for people as well. Primarily, if you know the impact that we have had on the climate and the radical changes that have taken place in this world, you will know that it has unfairly impacted the poorest people in the world, those who live in the southern hemisphere. We have just tasted just a glimpse of the impact here in British Columbia with wildfires and heat waves. But those in the southern hemisphere, uh, some of them has led to devastating impacts. In Genesis 3, Genesis 3, it goes on to describe two other relationships that are necessary for our flourishing that are a part of God's mission that have also been broken. And the first one is with ourselves. In 2.25, it says that Adam and his wife, they were both naked and they felt no shame. And being naked, it's symbolic of being vulnerable. Adam and Eve were both totally exposed for who they were, and yet they were entirely at peace. They didn't suffer from any insecurity or body issues or identity crises. They were confident in who they were because God had made them in his image. He had made them very good, and they felt good. But after they sinned, they no longer felt comfortable in their own skin. And Genesis 3-7 says that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, their eyes being opened means that they became self-conscious. But this isn't the self-awareness that's the mark of a mature individual. Rather, they became embarrassed because they were uncomfortable with who they were and so they covered up not only hiding themselves from one another, but hiding their vulnerabilities even from themselves. They were no longer able to see themselves as beautifully and wonderfully made. Rather, they only saw how exposed they were, how defenseless they felt. And then that final harmonious relationship necessary to fulfill God's mission in this world that we also broke was humanity's relationship with our creator, with God. Genesis 3.8 says that the Lord used to walk in the garden in the cool of the day. I think that's amazing. God used to just hang out with us on the earth. He used to come down just to chill with the people and the animals. And just our relationship with him was supposed to be one where we eagerly anticipated spending time with him. And God desired to spend time with us. But when we rejected his mission... We became fearful, and we no longer trusted God. Genesis 3.10 says, that's when we began to hide from him, and we became skeptical and afraid of God. The amazing thing about these beginning chapters of the Bible is it not only tells us what God's mission is, to bless the world and be in right relationship, 
It also tells us how it all got messed up through our rejection of God's mission, through, you know, rebelling, having plans of our own, going our own way. But it also tells us God's plan hasn't changed. Yes, we muddled things up, but he still intends to bless his world and have a harmonious relationship. God's shalom plan is still in effect, and he still wants to partner with humans in fulfilling his mission. We get the first hints of this in Genesis 3.15, when God curses the serpent who lured the first humans into rebelling. And if you didn't know, that serpent represents the rebellious and evil spiritual forces who are trying to thwart God's mission. Led by Satan and his mutinous squadron of fallen spiritual beings, God says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the people, sorry, you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Humanity will continue to be plagued by evil's cunning schemes, tempting us to reject God's mission. However, God says that his mission cannot be derailed or demolished, that one day evil will be crushed, and curiously enough, God says it will be a human that tramples evil. Now Christians believe that the one who crushed the evil serpent is Jesus, right? We celebrated the victorious lethal blow to evil two weeks ago at Easter time when Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty for humanity's rebellion so that we could be reconciled to God. And then he triumphed over death by his resurrection. Jesus, the Bible claims, is both fully God and fully human. And that through his sacrifice, he reversed the curse and assured that God's mission will prevail. You know, there's no way the serpent could have seen that part of God's plan coming. And quite honestly, no one could have anticipated. But God knew it would be necessary. You see, it was part of his mission from the very beginning. God knew the risks involved in partnering with us humans, right, whom he gave a will of our own. He knew that we would reject him. He knew the pain and the suffering that we would cause in all of our relations, including our relationship with him. Yet despite his foreknowledge of how humanity would hurt his mission to bless the world, he also knew that it wasn't the end. His kingdom would still come. His will will still be done. And God's mission continues. And he still invites you and I to partner with him in it. And see, that's what happens when we put our hope and trust in Jesus. He forgives us for the wrong things we've done the relationships that we've hurt, and the ways that you and I have cursed rather than blessed the people and the creation around us. But he not only forgives us, he does, but he also re-enlists us as partners with him in his mission to both help this world to thrive and to reconcile all the relationships that have been broken. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So it's not just missionaries, pastors, or people employed in full-time ministry who are on mission with God. But it is each one of us who has decided to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he extends that invitation to everyone and anyone to join with him. Only a few chapters after this garden scene, we see how God continues on his mission, partnering with people in order to reconcile the world and to help the the world flourish. So God partners with Noah in order to rescue the creation from the terrible wickedness that people had brought on the earth. Soon after, we see him choose to partner with a couple, Sarah and Abraham, right? Telling them to leave the security of all that they knew and join him in his mission. And in return, God promises them that he would build them into a nation, a nation that he would call his very own people and that he would keep them safe. But not just them. He says that through this nation, that God would bless all the peoples on the earth through them. Then in the book of Exodus, we see how God's mission involves delivering people from not only their sins and their spiritual oppression, but his plan also involves rescuing humanity from political and economic and social oppression as well. And God, that's part of God's plan in his mission today, too, to continue to deliver people from political and economic and social oppression, too. And then all throughout this rescue operation, we see how he enlists other people, whether it's Moses and Miriam, Aaron or Joshua, and other people. They play these vital roles in helping God rescue people from slavery, restore their relationships, and lead others towards the life of flourishing that God has planned for his creation. What he's doing is he's bringing us out of slavery and into a land of milk and honey. And along the way, we also see that God's mission is extremely exclusive, but it's also radically inclusive. It's extremely exclusive, right? Because to join God on his mission, you've got to give up your own mission, right? You've got to give up your own plans and be willing to follow him and reconcile your broken relationships, not only your relationship with God, you've also got to be willing to reconcile all those other broken relationships. Your relationship with yourself, with others, and the creation. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And this is an essential part of joining God on his mission. God says in Second Chronicles 7, If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You see how those are connected? How the reconciliation with God, God's going to reconcile with people, but also with the creation. Jesus talks about how repentance is an essential part of the mission. He says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. He says that twice in Luke 13. So God's mission is exclusive 
Joining God on mission is exclusive to those who would repent. But it's also radically inclusive. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to him through repentance. And we see how radically inclusive God is right there in the book of Exodus, right? When he is delivering the Israelites from Egypt in Exodus 12, 38. Don't overlook it. He says that along with the Israelites, a mixed multitude went up with them. And then in the prophet Isaiah, God says through the prophet that not only will he reconcile his people Israel who have rebelled, but he also promises to reconcile Israel's enemies, Egypt and Assyria, not only with himself, but with each other. He says, they will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And in that day, there will be a highway going from Egypt to Assyria, where Israel's right in the middle of them. And the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they're going to go back and forth to each other. They'll worship together. And in that day, Israel will be third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. And the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And then in the New Testament, God doubles down on how inclusive his mission is. He says through Paul in Romans 1, I love the way the message puts it, it's news I'm most proud to proclaim. It's this extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts in him, starting with the Jews and then right on down to everybody else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what scripture has said all along. The person in right standing before God by trusting him really lives. They flourish. They thrive. And God doesn't discriminate against who can join him on his mission with him. So neither should we. I love how in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he gets this picture from heaven of what things will look like when God's mission is finally complete. And John says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were all wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. I said earlier how I believe that the entire Bible is one unified story where we can see God's plan and purpose for this world woven throughout all of its pages. And I believe that. Even, I think that's true of some of the strange or difficult or boring parts of the Bible that are really foreign to us, like all of those laws we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I think many of those laws reveal the part of God's mission that the church in North America has long ignored, and that's his commitment to his creation. Here's three verses I just want to point out to us real quick. Leviticus 25 says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields. For six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath. It's supposed to have a rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 20. When you laid, lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it and capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can 
eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? No, they're not. And then Deuteronomy 22. This is an awesome but curious verse. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life. When we help creation to flourish, it helps us to flourish. This is God's mission and how he designed the world. Theologian Sandra Richter, she's brilliant. She talks about these Old Testament laws. She says they are to instruct us that in God's government, neither personal economic security, economic expansion, or even national defense were viable excuses for the abuse of the land or the creatures who lived upon it. It was never okay to take from the land everything that a populace could. Rather, Israel was commanded to leave enough that the next generation might flourish as well. All of these Old Testament laws of land, trees, and creatures communicate the same idea and the same principle. The land and its creatures belong to God, not us. And God cares for them, and he expects his people to do the same. And finally, we come to the time of Jesus. God himself, embodying how one goes about living on mission with God. And in Jesus, we see someone who completely depends on God. He's led by the Holy Spirit, and he's also willing to give up his own plans and desires. We see in him, it's not my will be done, but thy will. And we never see Jesus go it alone, right? We never see him just on his own. He is constantly calling other people to partner with him on God's mission, like these disciples, as if he needs them. He does need them. Partnering with people is an essential part of the plan. But what's so strange to many of us when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus live out the mission, he's not only telling people to get right with God. Now that certainly is an important part of it. But that's not the whole message. It's not the whole Gospel. There is more good news then just have your sins forgiven. In Luke 4, we see Jesus read his manifesto. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in case you and I are tempted to just reduce poor and prisoner and blind to just spiritual conditions, we need to take a look at how Jesus lived his life and his ministry and how they demonstrate how he has come to reconcile all things, not just our souls. We cannot reduce God's mission down to a track that contains just four spiritual laws or just appeal to getting right with God because his mission is far bigger than that. Jesus came and he healed the wounded, whether it was body, soul, or mind. He befriended the lonely and the outcast. He blessed children. He challenged our love of money or even our affection for holding grudges. He taught us how God's mission 
It excludes divorce and anger and lust and hatred. And yet, he also told us that we need to extend forgiveness and mercy to love those we would classify as our enemy because God forgives us, offers us mercy, and loves us more than we ever thought possible. And in the end, Jesus shows us how costly it's going to be to join God on his mission by allowing himself to be crucified in order that we could be reconciled, not just reconciled to God, but reconciled to ourselves and others and the creation. And we are invited to participate with him in God's mission, but it will also cost us. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to lose, save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so now we come back to the Great Commission. And don't worry, I'm wrapping things up. I hope it's clear for us now that missions is not limited to just those who go to a foreign country or actually there's a lot of people from foreign countries who are coming here on mission just to, you know, to teach the Bible. God's mission is about helping the entire world to flourish, right? And all of our relationships to be reconciled. And so when you think about that, there are so many possibilities of how you and I can participate with him on his mission. When Jesus says go, he doesn't mean that we need to go far away. He means go to work, go home, go to school, go next door. These are all places you and I can go in order to make disciples. And remember, even Jesus didn't make a disciple of every person he encountered. If you read the Gospels, normally it was people who actually showed a genuine interest and desire. Then when he says, make disciples of all nations, this is not a command that each of us is, again, to go elsewhere. Rather, he is telling us that God's mission includes an invitation to every tribe, nation, and tongue. The gospel's for everyone. And living here in the lower mainland, we have the joy of having representatives from many nations all around us. And it's awesome. But this also means we need to be very wise and careful. You see, in the past, cross-cultural missions have also caused a lot of pain and has actually been detrimental often to God's mission. Bringing devastation instead of flourishing. Creating rifts rather than reconciling relationships. All we need to do is take a look at church's relationship with indigenous people both here in Canada and around the world, and it's easy to realize that in many cases, we have been guilty of bringing our own agendas and not the mission of Jesus. But this doesn't mean that we should stop foreign mission altogether. We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? It does mean that we need to check our motivations and be extremely wise and sensitive. Then when Jesus says, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he commands, this needs to remind us that we are partner people. Because quite honestly, most of you have not had the opportunity to baptize another person. I gotta say, I've had the privilege and it's awesome. I love doing that. 
but most people won't get the opportunity to baptize somebody else. And which one of us can say we have taught another person everything Jesus has commanded? I certainly haven't even done that. We aren't on mission alone. We are on mission with God and with others. And so this is why the apostles and Paul, they set up churches everywhere they went. Making disciples happens in community, and being on mission happens in community. No one person can do this alone. We need each other. And we also do it with Jesus. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises never to leave us. God is with us. In fact, he's within us. And this is cause for great celebration for us, friends. See, it's not on us as individuals or even us as Calvary Baptist Church to fulfill the Great Commission on our own. Rather, it is our joy to participate with God in what he has been doing in this world from the very beginning, helping this world to flourish, reconciling relationships. Now, I'm not sure how each of you is to participate on mission with God. You see, you're very different from me, and that's a good thing right? We all have different talents and time, network connections, passions. God has gifted each of us uniquely, and so how we partner with him is also going to be unique. Several weeks ago, I got to do something I love. I got to go see someone using their gifts to bless the world in their workplace. Uh, Billy, who's a part of, our converse, uh, part of our congregation, he invited the staff down to the Vancouver Aquarium. We have a little picture. Ah, that's our newest staff member. Yeah. And he, so Billy works for the Vancouver Aquarium, and I got to observe the passion that Billy has for aquatic animals that he cares for. I also got to hear from other staff members about how Billy's work makes it possible for them to do research so that scientists and conservationists can protect and care for animals in the wild. Billy's a missionary. He may not be converting sea lions, but by caring for creation, he is participating in God's mission in this world through his work. And you are probably already participating with God's mission in this world. Maybe you're like, I don't see how. So maybe here are a few questions to get us thinking about how we may already be participating with God on his mission or maybe where we could start. First question, where are you passionate about being a blessing? Where are you passionate about being a blessing or helping others or the creation to flourish and thrive? This could be like local streams or wildlife sanctuaries. Maybe it's your workplace or your, your school or your children's school. I love how a couple weeks ago when we had Calvary Stories and Reese asked this question to Lydia, she said, I'm a mother of three boys and shows, so she is on mission with God in her home. So where are you passionate about being a blessing and seeing things flourish? Second question, what relationships are you most concerned about or excited to help reconcile? Now, right away, a certain relationship with another person might come into your mind, and that would be amazing. But I'm also talking categories too, right? 
because we can talk about we're excited and passionate about helping people to reconcile with God. Well, that's redemption, right? Or maybe helping people to reconcile with others, and so we want to get involved in conflict resolution. Bless you if that is your work. Or maybe you want to be one of those people who helps reconcile with creation so you can help do conservation and preservation work. We need you now. Or maybe you're someone who wants to help people reconcile with themselves, particularly in the area of mental and emotional well-being. God bless you in that work. So what relationships are you most concerned or excited to help reconcile? And finally, who could you partner with to bless the world or participate in reconciliation? Remember, if God is one who partners with us, we should also be partnering with other people too. We can't do it alone. We need other people. And whether it's other Christians or other non-Christians and organizations that are out there that are doing tremendous work in healing and helping this world, we can partner with them as well. And yes, the church. We need to partner with the church, whether it's Calvary or whether Calvary can partner with another church like the point in doing work. That's also what we need to do. I want to invite the worship team to come on up and let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful at how wonderful and large and glorious your mission is. I thank you, God, that you are at work in so many ways in this world. And what a blessing it is to be extended this invitation to partner with you. And I thank you that we can be super creative in how we do that. That it's not just limited just to a few people or a few certain gifts or ways of of working with you, God, but that, oh, Lord, uh, the ways that we can be on mission with you, they're so vast and there's so many. What great opportunities lay before us. So I pray that as we go from here, that you would begin to spark in us just ideas of and passions of how we can uh, participate with you on mission. And thank you, Jesus, for your promise that your authority and presence go with us. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.